that you're with us today, and as Craig said, we have a lot of folks that are out of town today at our family retreat. We love those retreats when families and singles and individuals and dads and, and kids and moms and kids and all the different ways we have retreats that folks can get together, because what we pray is we're becoming closer to God and closer to each other in a way that we can, we can reach out and the way we can have stronger individuals and stronger families. Well, today you've already seen the title of the sermon probably as we talk about unsung heroes. Today we're talking about symbols now and not the kind you cling together like some of you have asked me. And you might say this is a little bit of a stretch because we've been talking about people obviously being heroes. But today we're thinking about these symbols because obviously has been mentioned several times today. We remember with this weekend, 9-11-2001 and all that happened and so we think about that you know symbols are very interesting actually all words all letters are symbols all the letters of the alphabet are symbols and everything really the way we communicate is is with symbols I think about even today for example I wear my wedding ring it is a symbol that I am married and then if you ask to Barbara and it's a symbol of that and I'm not going to tell you the story of why I've had three, but I haven't lost one in like 25 years, so that's a good part. And then I wear, on the other hand, I have this other symbol. This is another, this is a ring from whenever I got my doctorate back, it's hard to believe, 11 years ago, and it has the insignia of the school on it, and it has a cross on the, that comes from the school, but obviously from Jesus on the ring. But what makes it so valuable to me is that Barbara and our girls, Annabeth and Emma, gave me this ring. And what makes it valuable is that on the inside it says, we are proud of you, 2010. They're symbols that we remember. And when I look at that, I remember Jesus, but I remember my wife and my girls as well. They're symbols. You think about the way that we communicate. I was thinking about this yesterday. You know, the thumbs up. You know, this is definitely a symbol, and you can all at once turn that into hang 10 whenever you go to Hawaii, right? And so then you do this and raise another finger, and you've got, you've got I love you, and then we're not going to do, we're not going to do hook em horns. I can't go that far. I just can't. You know, I'm a Sooner fan. I can't do that. But there are all kinds of symbols that we use and things we think of, and of course, there are symbols, and we think about September 11th, 2001, and many of you know this symbol, and we remember the twin towers that were there that were destroyed, and obviously the Pentagon and, and what happened in Pennsylvania, and there were other things on that day. But the twin towers symbolize what happened, and we remember that. Just the other day on our TV, I don't even think anybody was watching, but the old show Barney Miller came on, and it was showing spanning across New York City, across Manhattan, and there were those twin towers, and instead of thinking about a comedy or a sitcom, I remembered 2011 or 2001 and what happened on September 11th, or September 1st, 2001. We remember those things. Let me get the date right, September 11th, 2001. We remember those things. There's a story of a woman named Teresa Tobin. She was one of many heroes that day, and there's so many stories that can be told. Matter of fact, this uh, month, uh, a Smithsonian Magazine is telling, has told many of the stories of families that lost people or people that were heroes, and one of those heroes was Teresa Tobin. 
And she was working in, in downtown in Manhattan, and she was one of many, many officers on that day. But she was just there at her job, and her job was she was a plain-clothed police officer. Didn't have to wear the uniform, but that first airplane hit, and you know, obviously, it was chaos, and police and other rescuers were going toward it. And as she was going toward the, the building, one of her friends, who was also a police officer, said, put on a Kevlar helmet. So she put on the helmet, and they're going toward the building and all at once they hear the roar as the building is falling and she turns around to run away and she knows there's a concrete wall right by her and she thought I hope I hope nothing happens with that wall well as she is running away all at once she feels a pound on the back of her head and her Kevlar helmet has split from a piece of concrete hitting her in the back of the head she falls to the ground literally she came out of her shoes as she went flying falls on the ground and thinks, oh, I've got concrete in my mouth. She spit on the ground, and it was one of her wisdom teeth. You can imagine how horrible this must have been. She is running on full adrenaline, and she gets up. There's an apartment building not far away. She runs toward that apartment building. Maybe I can help folks there. There's no one in the lobby. It seems odd to her. She opens a door. It's a door to the stairwell, and it is filled with people, some that were getting ready to go to work, other folks that, that were there with their children, and she said some that obviously had just gotten out of the shower. And, and you know, everyone was petrified. And so she starts leading them out of the building, and other folks, policemen, come to help her. There is a reporter that's taking pictures nonstop. She says, look, I understand you've got to do your job, but you've got to walk backwards because we have to get everybody out of here. Well, in the midst of all this, another police officer said to Teresa Tobin, hey, you've got to go to the hospital. She goes, what do you mean? I'm fine. She says, no, you have a long shard of glass sticking out of the back of your neck. She had so much adrenaline going, she had no idea it was there. They take her to the hospital. She's helping a reporter who's scared to death, who's hurt, on the way holding his hand, and, and, and he's afraid that his family won't know where he is. And so she writes the number, the phone number of his family on her bracelet so someone can call and tell them that he's okay. Well, they take her in to do surgery and get this thing out of her neck. And because she's had a double concussion, they can't give her any anesthetic for, for, for the surgery. So they take it out. Her foot is so swollen, they can't get like an air cast or anything around it. And her brother-in-law, who's a police officer, somehow knew where she was, finds her and says, come on, I'm taking you home. She says, no, we got to go to the station. They go back to the station. She works for another two or three hours when finally the adrenaline starts wearing off and she realizes, I'm not in very good shape. And for two months, she, re she had to go through rehab because of all that had happened to her. Now, that's what we call a hero. And people who are willing to give so much and do so much for others. And so when Teresa Tobin sees this 9-11 symbol... She remembers. And when we see it, we remember, and we remember people who did heroic things, some probably even in Houston, as well as in Oklahoma where we were living and other places where you were. People did heroic and outstanding things, and so we don't want to forget what happened. And obviously we remember the tragedy of the day, but we also remember the blessings of the day and the way, as has been said today, Jason said and, and Craig said how people came together and what a beautiful moment it was in the midst of all the horrific tragedy, there was some kind of good that happened. 
Well, the Bible is full of symbols. There are symbols all over the Bible of where God said, I want you to do this and remember this. God is, was big on them, especially in the Old Testament. Always there were things that were symbolic for the people to remember. And you remember there was a time whenever, whenever God's people were captive in Egypt. And they'd gone to Egypt. Joseph was there. And then a new Pharaoh comes up. God's people become slaves. And it was a terrible mess for God's people. And you remember that they were forced to do all kinds of terrible things to, as, as slaves. And finally, after hundreds of years, God says, hey, I want you to be able to leave. And so you remember all the things that God did, and you remember that they had the bread. They took the, the bread, like unleavened bread, because uh, to eat, and they prepared it for that special night whenever they were going to leave Egypt after all the plagues, because there wouldn't be time for the bread to rise. And God said, I want you to be eating that bread, and I want you to remember as a symbol what it was like on the night you left Egypt. And you remember that also there was that blood that went on the door, doorpost that, so that none of their firstborn died. And so he said, I want you to remember that. And so you remember in the Passover, people would, would take that cup and they would take that bread and they would remember what Jesus or what God had done back in Egypt. And then Jesus took that, just like we did just a minute ago. And he said, now when you take that bread, you don't need to remember when we left Egypt. You need to remember my body until I return for you. And he said, and when you take that cup, you don't need to remember that blood that was over that doorpost, but you remember the blood that is about to be on a piece of wood for you so that your sins can be forgiven so that you take it until I come, until you see me again. Jesus did all, or did all of those things, and God was big on symbols like that. And so you remember when God's people finally got out of Egypt and God did this incredible miracle. We ought to call it miracle, a miracle and a half whenever he parts the Red Sea and God's people walk across the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army goes, in, goes down that path and then the water comes in on them and God destroys the army of Egypt and God saves, saves his people and it's wonderful and magnificent and it takes them about 15 minutes before they start griping. Boy, that might as well have been written about today, right? About 15 minutes into it, they're griping and complaining. It's too hot. You know, we don't like walking. We don't like our food. And then whenever they get food, oh, we don't like the food. We're thirsty. On and on and on and on. Complain, complain, complain. And so God left them out in the desert for 40 years. It should have only taken them a few, a few weeks to walk from Egypt to the promised land. But instead, God keeps them going in circles because they are not ready spiritually and mentally to go in to the prom into the promised land. Interesting, whenever you think about God leading us, maybe we're not ready for some things sometimes that we think we're ready for. So finally God says, the first generation that comes out, they're not going to go into the promised land. I'm going to wait until they all die, and then the second generation will get to go into the promised land. And so finally, that's the way that it worked, and they crossed the Jordan River, and now here comes our first symbol for today. In Joshua chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, Joshua is going to tell them to set up 12 stones. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one for each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you in the future when your children ask you, 
What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. So, he says, you take those 12 stones out of the Jordan River and take one for each tribe, 12 tribes, and you stack them up together and put them there. Now, why would God say something like that? Or why would Joshua, God through Joshua, well, it was to remember what God had done. Don't forget what God has done. Wouldn't it be great to remember what God has done always? There have been times that we have prayed and prayed for someone to get well, and by whatever reason, God has chosen for them to get well. And you might tell that story over and over and over to your kids, but we ought to also be telling that story of what God has done. There have been times when it seemed like there was no way out, and we have prayed and prayed, and God has found a way. And those are things that we need to tell about and talk about. It was to remember what God had done, that God gives direction whenever it seemed like God was taking them in circles because it seems he was because they weren't ready spiritually for what he had for them he wanted them to know God does give direction that God is active that God is at work and that God keeps his promises we do not have to worry about that God is going to be faithful every time and God keeps his promises he has been faithful to what he said he would do. And so therefore, as the promise as he said he would take them into the promised land is what he did. He kept his promise. So I want you to imagine, you are in Israel, you are an Israelite, and you have been in the land now for five or ten years, and you have little children. And you're walking along by the Jordan River. Maybe you're going down to get water. Maybe you're going to swim. Maybe it's for a ritual bath that they would sometimes do. And you say to your child, you see those stones over there? You see those? Yeah, I see those, Dad. You know what those are? No, what are those? How did those get like that? Let me tell you the story of how God helped us. Let me tell you the story about how we were in Egypt for 400 years as slaves and God brought us up out of Egypt and he opened up the Red Sea and your grandparents were able to walk across on dry land to the other side and God provided and then when it was time for us to come into this new land this new land that has milk and honey into this new place God provided again and he told us to take those rocks And to set them up so that we would never forget what God had done. You know, yesterday, I'm guessing that some of you spent some time with your children or your grandchildren talking about 9-11, especially some that weren't old enough to remember. And you told them, let me tell you what it was like on that day. Let me tell you, you might have even told them what you had for breakfast that day. I mean, you remember it that clearly. The the moments of that day are just as clear as yesterday to me. I wrote back and forth to our oldest daughter, Annabeth, about things that I remembered about about what it was like that day and, 
and how much I worried about her and Emma and Barbara being and couldn't wait for school to be out so that, that I could talk to them and, and hug them. You remember that, right? That's what's happening with these rocks. They are remembering God, what God had done. And so he said, when you see these rocks, you're not going to forget me, but remember what God has done. Well, there is another moment, another symbol. In our world, it's the most known symbol of all. And you know, the cross. And it is a pivotal moment in our history when the cross came about, as you know. I would call it the second pivotal moment. The first pivotal, pivotal moment would have been creation of time. The second is going to be the cross. And just yesterday, the, lots of you were watching football or you were, or you were out doing other things, but also the U.S. Open was on, and, and there is a new champion in, in women's tennis. I wish I could remember her last name. It's a little bit too long, but her first name is Emma. We watch a lot of tennis in our house. Barbara's a big tennis fan. We watch. Well, little Emma, who's only 18 years old and won the U.S. Open yesterday, she was born in Toronto but lives in Great Britain she wore a cross. And you know, it was interesting, she wore that. Sometimes it's just jewelry for a person to wear. But I looked her up on Wikipedia. Her father's Romanian, her mother is Chinese. She now lives in Great Britain. And to think that at least the Chinese government does not think fondly of crosses. They take crosses down. And to think about Great Britain, a country we were so honored to go visit a few years ago that's so beautiful and lovely, and so many of us have ancestors from there, but realize most of the churches, church buildings in Great Britain are empty today. And to see her wear the cross just seemed like something kind of special. Now, I realize that people abuse the cross. I understand that, and I understand that sometimes it's just something to wear to people. But there is also something pretty powerful about that in the right place. So I think about the cross, and I think about in Matthew chapter 27. This says 28, but it's 27. Oh, it does say 27, 38 through 41. Two rebels or two thieves were crucified with Jesus. One would have been on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by, they hurled insults at him. They shook their heads and they said, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. So you can imagine a little bit of what it must have been like and obviously the cross was a bit different than this but this is our symbol today of it. Of Jesus hanging there, probably a little bit higher up. And all the religious important people, the bureaucrats of religion, are below him. Save yourself. You who say that you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. While your mother and your best friends and your aunts... Stand by and watch them make fun of you. And he's on this cross, from everything we know, naked, because it was to be as humiliating as possible. 
And he's on that cross. And that symbol is so incredibly strong when we think about what the cross means. Why would he do that? And why would we remember it? Well, it's to remember what the Father and Son have done. To remember what they have done. And you say, wait a minute, the Father and Son. Often we talk about, even sometimes in prayers, someone will, will pray specifically to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Well, that's, in, that's important. Obviously, I understand that. Understand what the Father did. If you are a father or a mother, and to intentionally allow your child to die, can't even put that into words, can you? Because you couldn't do it. I mean, it's so overwhelming to think God was willing to do that and that the Father was willing to let Jesus die. And then to think that Jesus, from Philippians 2, that it talks about he humbled himself. Some of us sometimes, well, I was really humbled when such and such happened, or I'm so humble. Now, understand what humility is. Humility is allowing yourself to be killed on a cross. That is what Jesus did. He died on the cross for us in the most humiliating, most excruciating way that the Romans knew how to kill someone, and that's what the cross was. But we remember the cross because God kept his promise. God said he would provide a way, and God did provide a way. And sometimes we wonder, well, why in the world is it like this? Because you know in the Old Testament it talks about that in order for sin to be, kind of, to be forgotten for a while, to be pushed back and back and back, or pushed forward and forward, we know that, that sometimes they would sacrifice a lamb, or they would, if you were too poor, you would sacrifice some, some doves or pigeons in order to make that sacrifice to God. And you say, well, why is it like that? I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer that. All I can tell you is it's the way the plan was set up. And so for there to be an ultimate sacrifice, for sins to be truly forgiven once and for all, for that big sacrifice to happen, it had to be someone that was perfect. And there has only been one person lived that was ever perfect, and it was Jesus himself who willingly died for our sins. Now, when I start thinking about dying for someone else, I can imagine dying for my wife. I can imagine dying for my children. I can imagine dying for some of you. You can get that. But would you die for the woman across the street that nags and says your, your yard's too messy? Would you die for her? Would you die for the guy who cussed you out at the store the other day because your cart accidentally ran over the back of his, his ankles and he cussed you out? Would you die for him? Would you die for people that have political views that are completely opposite of yours? Would you die for them? Would you die for people who, who are carrying American-made guns in, in, in Afghanistan today? Would you die for them? Jesus did, so that all people would have the opportunity to come to know him. Jesus did. That's what's so incredible about the cross. 
Not a one of us deserve it. Do not look down at people. Do not snub your nose at people because they're not as good as you. Because you're not any good either. None of us are without Jesus. None of us. And that's what is so incredible about the cross is not a single person deserved it. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much education you have. It doesn't matter what passport you have. It doesn't matter what race you are. None of it matters because none of us deserve anything without the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't deserve that cross. But he kept his promise. And he died for us. He did what he said he would do. In the most humiliating, most excruciating way, he did it. First Peter chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. When they had hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who is God, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds, the ones in his hands, the ones in his feet, the one in his side, and the ones on the top of his head from the crown of thorns, because by his wounds, we have been healed. By what he went through emotionally and mentally and spiritually, we have been healed. That is overwhelming. Back during, during World War II, 1944, the United States and under Douglas MacArthur were wanting to, to, to get a, a base in Indonesia. So on the island of Biak, they took that island so that they could, they could have a base there. And, and it wasn't long, as you know, a chaplain followed and a chaplain came along to serve the men there spiritually. And this uh, chaplain, they gave him a, a canvas little building. If you've been in the military, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you've watched old episodes of MASH, you know what I'm talking about. 60 by 20, no, no roof. And so he put a yellow parachute over the top of it. Some of the men made some benches and made a little platform and a little lectern stand. And this, this chaplain named Lloyd Motley wanted to uh, offer the Lord's Supper for the men. He felt it was deeply important that they take the Lord's Supper. And he had nothing for little cups to give to them. So he said, well, what am I going to do? So what he, what he did was he took bullets and he emptied the lead out of them and whatever else is in them and, and formed them. It took two hours per cup. He made 50 cups. But he formed them so that they could be used as cups for the Lord's Supper. From what I understand, this little Lord's Supper set is now on, is on display in Daytona Beach at the Veterans Museum there. And he wanted to make sure that all of his men would be able to remember the body and the blood of Jesus. When the war was over, he took it on into Japan and served there on a base and served the Lord's Supper there to people out of this little Lord's Supper set that he made out of bullets. And incidentally, none of those bullets were, were used on people, but they were used to remember Jesus. Under that set in Daytona Beach at the museum, 
is a little plaque that says, obviously the chaplain understood the significance of making instruments of death into instruments of peace. So this cross, that was the instrument of death, becomes the instrument of peace. And so sometimes people will say, well, would you have worn an electric chair around your neck if Jesus would have died in an electric chair? Understand that the cross became an instrument of peace because it's where the sacrifice for the world was made so that we can have peace with God. Paul thought about it all the time in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. The Apostle Paul said, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There was nothing more important than remembering Jesus and Him crucified. And so whenever Paul is being shipwrecked because he's being taken as a prisoner and he's shipwrecked, he remembers Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When people are whipping Paul with 39 lashes, as the Bible says, he remembers Jesus Christ and Him persecuted. When people are kicking Paul out of town because he preaches Jesus Christ, he remembers Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I wonder what we're thinking about when we're at work on Monday morning. I wonder what we're thinking about when we're out with friends on Saturday evening. Do we think about Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Do we remember Jesus. Well, there's another pivotal moment. That's the one found in Matthew chapter 28 at the empty tomb. You know the passage, starting in verse 5, says, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women, they hurried away from the tomb, yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, they clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Can you imagine how incredible this moment was? And this is what we'd call really the third pivotal, pivotal moment, is whenever Jesus comes up out of the grave. You've got Mary, and you've got the other women there, and they go to see the grave, and they're thinking, you know, the stone's rolled away, and what in the world does that mean? And it's empty. And then all at once, there's... They hear Jesus, and at first she doesn't recognize Jesus, and then all at once, hey, I know that voice, I know that guy, and he's saying, Mary. And she realizes, and how incredible it must have been, that they thought he was dead, and now he's alive. Can you imagine if one of our relatives was dead, and then all at once they're alive, the way we would feel and how excited we would be. And they say, go and tell my disciples, and they do. This is that incredible moment, this incredible symbol. And unfortunately, it's one that we don't use very much, but I wish we did. I wish we used it more to show that the grave is empty. This little grave, for example, most of you know, from, if you come here, you know about my sermons. Behind our house, there's a, there's a trail that folks walk on. There's a little creek, and then there's a trail on both sides. It's very simple, and, and we walk out there every night with our dog, unless it's raining, we're out there. And so there are lots of folks we see, we talk to, we know. We know most people by the name of their dogs rather than their own names. But we know lots of people out there. 
And every year around Easter time, we put this out. We started doing that in the first COVID, when it first, when it first started, when there was so much sadness and worry. There still is, I understand that. But when it first started, and everyone, what are we going to do? And in chalk, Emma wrote on our fence, He is risen. To give hope. And you think, well, everybody out there, I mean, after all, it's, it's, it's Houston, Texas. Everybody believes in Jesus, right? Well, at least two women we walk with don't believe in Jesus. And to give hope and say, this is a house where people do believe that the grave is empty. This is a house that believes that the cross is empty. This is a house that believes in hope. These are people who are willing to talk to you and people who are willing to say that we believe in Jesus and we believe that there's a reason to think about tomorrow. So why would we remember the resurrection? Why would we remember an empty tomb? Well, we remember what the Father and Son have done. We remember that the grave is empty. We remember that God kept His promise. When God made a promise that Jesus would resurrect from the grave, and he did, just like Jesus said he would, he did. And it's also a promise that Jesus, or it's a fact that Jesus will keep his promise. Because you see, Jesus made a promise to us that he would come back again. And that will be the fourth pivotal, that is a hard word to say, the fourth pivotal moment of history is when Jesus comes back again. And so Jesus said he would do it. He said, the day is going to come whenever you see me in the clouds. And it's all going to happen. And so my question for us today as we talk about that for just a moment is, will I be ready? Will I be ready? You know, this is kind of, this is kind of an, uh, uh, a politically incorrect thing to even ask someone if they're ready. Do you know Jesus? You know, are you ready for the second coming? You know, that kind of thing. And people laugh at that. And there's some reasons why people laugh at it. I get it sometimes because of who says it. But also, people like to laugh that off about, are you ready for, to see Jesus or meet Jesus? People like to laugh that off because they're not ready. Are you ready to meet Jesus? Now this says, well, I'd be ready. I should have changed that to be, am I ready? Because no one knows when Jesus is going to return. Am I ready? Some of us maybe need to be baptized into Jesus. You know, this is the beautiful thing of Romans chapter 6. And Romans chapter 6 brings these things together. And it talks about the symbolism of what happens. Of whenever I'm baptized into Christ, I am dying with Christ. And so in a sense, I'm dying. And then it says, I am resurrected in Christ. So all this is happening. It's symbolic, yes, but it's that moment when Jesus is taking away sins, and in its place we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so some of us probably are at a point in life we need to be baptized. We know we have sin, and Jesus can take that away. Not just like take it away for a little while, but obliterate it so it doesn't exist anymore. And some of us need to do that, even in this audience, whether you're watching online or you're in the room today. Oh, and some of us. You remember how united we were as we've talked about on 9-12. Well, we were ready to help people, weren't we? 
We were all helping. People were helping each other. We'd talk to people in the grocery store. You didn't have to live in New York or Pennsylvania or in Washington in order to be that way. People were paying for each other's groceries. People were hugging people they didn't know. I mean, it was an amazing time, wasn't it? You'd see a military person or person wearing a hat. Somebody was buying, buying their, their lunch. It didn't matter if you were at Taste of Texas or Denny's. They were going to buy, buy their lunch. I mean, people were united and together. It seemed like so many things went away and, and, and that had kept us apart. Now we were together. You remember when you were baptized into Christ? And some of us, when we were baptized into Christ, we were ready to take the world. We'd talk to anybody about Jesus. We were ready. We are dedicating our lives to Jesus. Whatever that means, we're doing it. And the days turned into months and the months into years and the years into decades. And we are so far from that kind of commitment. It's hard to even know what it looks like. We sometimes sit around and fret about the problems of this country. The problems of this country are not on the outside. They're on the inside, right here. We are the solution. People who pray, people who talk about Jesus, people who help neighbors, people who help enemies, people who lift others up, that's the solution right there. This isn't rocket science, it's just the Bible. Am I ready? Do I look like Jesus or do I look more like people on TV? Do I look like the pundits? Do I look like the, the actors? Do I, do I look like, like those folks or do I look like Jesus? That's what he's called us to. To be like him. And if these things help us remember they're great, surely we will never look at them in vain. But always remember the Savior that died and the Savior that was resurrected and the Father that was a part of all of it. Let's put Jesus first. Come as we stand and sing.